This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with an adjunct professor teaching an air traffic control certification program. In the news, we have a number of airline and airport safety items from the FAA. A safety call to action a request for increased hand flying during normal operations, a new rule requiring airport safety management systems, and IT system fixes. Also in the news, airlines decry the advantage of some Asian carriers have in being able to fly over Russian airspace. And we also have an Australia News Desk report. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 738 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hi, great to be here. Sorry I couldn't join you last week when John Ostrow was on. But I had to ask, was that just coincidence that you had John on and he, it was episode 737? It was, I know, I know. We didn't take as much advantage of that as we could have, but... Okay. Yeah, yeah. But we will invite him back in 50 episodes. All right. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, which is part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He spent 10 years of his career at the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. You sounded as if you weren't completely sure about that. I mean, I, I have the shackle marks on my uh, my ankles yet to, to prove that I worked for the agency. But uh, I'm just kidding. Okay. Hey, thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's nice to be here. All right. And also with us is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, all. Looking forward to um, some commentary about ATC. Yes, well, we're going to have a lot of that because our guest this episode is Brooke Manley. She's an adjunct professor at SUNY Schenectady, uh, the Air Traffic Control Certification Program. Brooke worked at Albany Tower, that's an FAA-controlled tower in Latham, New York, for three and a half years. She graduated from SUNY Schenectady in 2017 with a degree in aviation science, air traffic control, and a commercial pilot's license. Brooke, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. Now, we should say right up front, for those who uh, don't know, that SUNY, S-U-N-Y, is State University New York and has multiple locations. And uh, where you've been teaching is at Schenectady, New York. Yes, in the SUNY school system, I teach at Schenectady. Now, it's, uh, it's one of only two colleges in the country that offers an air traffic control tower operator certification program, as I understand it. And we'll be talking about this a lot, but I see that the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that about 2,400 controller openings are projected every year, in part because of the FAA's mandatory retirement age at 56. Boy, that's... That's pretty young. That also explains perhaps why Rob had to get out of ATC 30 years ago. 
<laughs> it is pretty young. Yeah. Um, I plan to stick with Schenectady and make that a long-term career. I love teaching it. Got a couple years to go till 56, but uh, looking forward to the early retirement. Yeah. Outstanding. I, I, I didn't have to get out. I, I just knew enough that when they opened the door and pointed, I, I just walked out. <laughs> just I mean, that's that's not the same thing, Max. I think you're you're overstepping your bounds here. Okay, all right. I know the bath doesn't really work out, but <laughs> well, I still work on my fingers anyway. So I, I know I noticed you you counting. All right. Well, we're going to get into that um, coming up. First, we've got some of the aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? We're ready from the west and the Midwest and Delaware. All right. First story, FAA issues safety call to action after several near disasters. And we see that the acting administrator of the FAA, Billy Nolan, has issued a memorandum to the FAA management board announcing the formation of a safety review team to examine the U.S. aerospace system's structure, culture, processes, systems, and integration of safety efforts. So this is a call to action. I don't know if we've seen other calls to action uh, in the past, but he does say in his memorandum that we are experiencing the safest period in aviation history, but we cannot take this for granted. Recent events remind us that we must not become complacent. Now is the time to stare into the data and ask hard questions. So this sounds like a good thing. Yeah, I kind of wonder when they say... um yeah, we've had all these major incidents and it's the safest period. I think people probably get confused on why that is. And I'm sure what they mean by safest period is that we haven't had a, a fatal airline accident in, in many years. And in fact, you have to go back many, many years to come back to, to two fatals. Uh, but I think it is concerning that we've had some major incidents that could have led to you know, potential <laughs> big accidents. And so I'm sure that's why they're raising their concerns and trying to uh, figure out if there's co- some common thread and something that can be done to prevent the next disaster. I, I think it's also uh, important that we, if you read this story from Axios, that it, it uh, under the heading of why it matters, uh, it's a public acknowledgement that the agency is acutely aware of those incidents and it's taking steps to investigate and learn from them. <sighs> okay. I mean, I think that's kind of the point of the whole story was FAA said, oh, my God, we better we better put something out very quickly that assures the public that we're looking into it. Um, And uh, those of us in the uh, in the industry have looked at, you know, the situations that we've had. What is it over uh, maybe two weeks, really? No, I guess about four weeks uh, between the uh, JFK and. And the other ones, but boy, that one at uh, at Austin was just holy smokes! I mean, uh, that was so close that it uh, it was just positively scary. And there's no other way to uh, to look at it. And uh, you know, as we get into our discussion with Brooke, I mean, I think we'll probably talk about the uh, the importance of the controller's role. Uh, not just in issuing the instructions, but emphasizing the importance of a particular instruction. Um, 
and uh, but we'll come back to that. I, I don't want to take up the time now for that, but uh, but these were all scary. I'm curious, Brick, is this something that you think might have led to you know, what the controllers refer to as a deal? And as we talked about this incident, really to us, seemed like the Southwest was really slow to get on the runway. It sounds like the American uh, took action to uh, go ahead and go around. I suspect that the visibility from the tower was such that they might not have really been able to see what was going on uh, just because of the low visibility. Uh, so from my perspective, it didn't really seem like the controllers were at fault. But even so, I mean, does that end up going? Uh, what What do you think? Is the controllers going to be, uh, you know, told they, they had a deal? From what I understand, I heard the same thing where the controller could not see the aircraft that was taking off. Um, and that is uh, like, it's normal to work where you can't see them when the, the field is, uh, like socked in or fogged in that is normal to work with memory aids where you write down where the airplane is and you just you have a mental picture of where everyone is so that's not unusual for a controller to not be able to see the pilot or see the airplane um, but there's a lot of redundancy where that should never have happened and hopefully will never happen again well, I, I long as we started it down that road uh, <laughs> what what I was going to say is that the uh, not only could he not? Uh, could could the controller not see the airplanes? I mean, it was Cat Three weather. I mean, I think the RVR when the uh, controller cleared that uh, uh, Southwest for takeoff was twelve hundred or something like that, and and the rollout and the takeoff. I'm sorry, the rollout, the uh, takeoff, and the midfields were all different. And I think the midfield was down to about eight hundred. I mean, uh, what is that four? Four runway lights, I think. Uh, in so nobody could see anybody. Uh, but what I was referring to in terms of the the controller's uh, role is that it sounded like a walk in the park. Uh, Southwest eighty six oh two cleared for takeoff. One eight left. Traffic's uh, heavy. Seven sixty seven on a three mile final, and and that was it. And as soon as I heard the recording, I said, a three mile final. In, in Cat 3 weather, and you're going to let somebody go in front of this guy? Holy, I, I, I can delete the expletives here, but <laughs> I mean, I knew that was never going to work. Uh, but then he didn't prompt the pilot either, like, hey, minimum time on the runway. I mean, this, you know, this fellow's uh, three miles out, uh, report rolling. Uh, he just kind of kind of let it go and said, I I cleared him for takeoff. I guess he'll do the right thing. And uh, so there was a lot of situational awareness issues, I think, that are going to come up in the uh, NTSB investigation into that uh, into that near collision. Um, it sounded like the only ones that really had any situational awareness to me was the FedEx crew. And um, uh, that's probably what caused the person working the radios to say, Southwest abort. Um because they were afraid right then at that point that they were going to the airplane was going to take off and they were going to meet, uh, you know, 100 feet in the air. Um, but again, I, I guess I was see, I was taught differently that when you have a close one, uh, you, you prime the pilot uh, when they say we're ready for takeoff. OK, we're going to get you out. But there's there's a jet on a three mile final. So there's no delay on the runway cleared for, ta you know. But you can't move that quickly in Cat 3 weather. 
You just cannot taxi an airplane onto a runway, line it up, and, and be ready to go that quickly. So, I, I mean, and as I said to somebody else today, what was the rush? What was the rush to get this guy out so quickly? I mean, what, what would it have hurt to make Southwest sit there another two minutes until, the, uh, until FedEx landed? Um, I don't know. Those are the things we're all going to be listening for, I think, when, or, or I'm sorry, looking for in the report when, uh, when the NTSB goes in. You know, I was thinking a big difference between um, the JFK incident in Austin. For sure, JFK has uh, ASDX, which is the uh, the surface uh, radar or sensors, if you will, that uh, provide a, a complete picture of everybody who's moving on the ground. I, I looked at the list. I couldn't find Austin on the list. Mm-hmm. I think that would have made a huge difference if the controller had ASDX because then they could actually see the position of the southwest uh, in real time. Well, that's true, and... and uh the that that's why it's so important for the controller uh to be on the pilot and and say i need to know when you're rolling it's very you know it's really critical i mean he doesn't have to use all these words but uh, i've got to he's got to know when that airplane's rolling because uh, but again why would the southwest crew even accept a clearance like that that Great is question. another one to me uh with, with that kind of spacing uh a 76 heavy uh, on final, he's doing two and a half miles a minute. So th- there wasn't much time. And that was from the time he cleared him. It's not like the, 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 the uh, Boeing was sitting on the runway waiting to go. He hadn't even gotten to the center line yet. Hmm. I want to come back to some of the specifics of this call to action, but but first, let me ask Brooke a question. I, I'm curious: do do incidents like uh, this one or these uh, become uh, teaching opportunities for students, uh, uh, even just like around the water cooler, or do they, you know, do discussions about these uh, find the, the the way into the classroom? Yeah, they absolutely do. Uh, right now, uh, the ground control class is uh, what I'm teaching. Next semester will be the local control class. But we absolutely do bring up the real world um, stories that are coming up. Um, we also bring up a lot when they work in live traffic in the tower. We'll bring that back to the lab and go back over it, see what could have been done better, a different way to work it, what could have gone wrong. So this is definitely a scenario that I will be bringing up in the local control class. Um, and it will come up in the lab even with ground control. Um, with the, I teach them the tower team concept. It's a see something, say something. So maybe someone else in the tower cab maybe would have noticed that, Hey, this may, may not work. This is may not, maybe not a good idea. Um, I agree with Robert that could have been done with a little more urgency. The traffic could have been issued to both aircraft. Um, they could have requested a rolling call from the departing aircraft where the Southwest would have a cutoff. Okay. If the plane doesn't report rolling by, 60 seconds or 90 seconds, I'm going to issue a go around to the arriving traffic. So, yeah, we definitely will bring all this stuff to the lab. I'll bring it up to the students. Um, I try and give them as much like real world ideas as I can, because reading from the book doesn't always give them a picture. Right. And a lot of uh, a lot of controllers and probably pilots, too, are very hands on learners. Like we want to hear like we want to hear the stories. What really happens? Tell us about the rolling call. I, I'm unfamiliar with that. How, how would that uh, be expressed by a controller? Um, so you, the pilot, the controller would give um, the a normal takeoff clearance, and the instruction would be report rolling. And then the controller would expect the pilot just to key up and say, 
um, their call sign at rolling. So that would mean they are on the roll. They're not sitting there um, like lined up on the runway. Uh, it's so the pilot, the controller knows that that plane is actually on the move. So that may have benefited that scenario. So in that case, if the controller said report rolling, they did not get a rolling call, they would have issued a go around because they would have a cutoff on when it would be safe to let the plane, let the arriving plane keep going. Yeah, it was still, it was still scary. I yeah. mean, and I, I, I know that when I was a trainee, I mean, when I would get busy, sometimes you, you're so busy issuing instructions that you don't have time to always think maybe the way that they'd like you to, which is why you're not certified yet because you're mm -hmm. still learning. And, and when things would be tough, they would say, okay, so I see what you're doing, but what are you going to do if, uh, what are you going to do if Southwest aborts? <gasps> hmm. Oh, Jesus. I never, I never thought, well, and that could have really been a mess if Southwest had aborted for some reason with the seven, six touching down at the other end. I, you know, yeah. but I'm just saying that's how you, you kind of prime students to just like we do when we're teaching them to fly max. I mean, you say, okay, well, I see you doing that. So what are you going to do if this happens just to see if their head is in the game? Hmm. Yeah. Same thing for ATC. We are prepping them for plan A, B, C, all the way through Z. What happens yeah. if this one goes wrong? What happens if they get a wind shear alert? What happens if this one aborts takeoff? You should be ready and have those backup plans in your head at all times. How am I going to separate these two airplanes? What heading am I going to give them? Um, you got to have the backup plans. All right. I just want to, before we move on to the next story, just mention real quickly some of the, the aspects to this safety call to action. There's kind of three components, and the uh, acting administrator says that the initial focus is going to be on a safety summit held in March, and uh, second is asking the commercial aviation safety team to take a fresh look at aviation safety information analysis and data sharing. And then finally, the review team will focus on the air traffic organization, assess ATO's internal processes, symptom, symptoms, systems, and operational integration. So uh, we have those uh, three. And we'll put a link to the actual memo calling for this um, safety call to action. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, but our next story comes from the Royal Aeronautical Society. This is FAA shifts focus to pilot manual flying skills. It's uh, part of a, a, well, we've been talking about this for 15 years, I guess, maybe 20, that as automation came to be, uh, pilots were becoming less and less uh, proficient uh, at, at anything other than just pushing buttons. And uh, that when the automation hits the fan, as we say, well, I, it doesn't matter whether you're uh, uh, a pilot or a controller. When you're depending on a particular computer system and it just like that dies, uh, it's kind of what we were talking about a minute. Now, what are you going to do? I, I, I don't know. I give up. No, I'm sorry. Giving up is not one of the options. Um, but uh, and, and the Royal Aeronautical Society uh, actually put out something about this uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, and they did another blog post uh, oh, a week or two ago about, guys, maybe it's time we emphasize again that how how important it is that 
the uh, PIC and the SIC know how to operate the airplane when the technology uh, falls apart. Uh, because uh, uh, a lot of companies, I mean, I, I knew some of the companies that I flew for said, no, no, we want you on autopilot as soon as you can after takeoff and right down to the ground if you can. <clears throat> Excuse me, because it flies the airplane more smoothly than you do. Um, and maybe they were taking pot shots at me personally. I don't know. I thought I was a fairly decent <laughs> pilot, but I, 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 you know, but again, and, and airlines are pretty much like that too. But, but then when does the crew have an opportunity to practice, um, uh, landings, approaches, uh, holds, climbs, uh, steep turns, anything when the, uh, when the automation's not actually doing it for them. Um, and uh, l- look at these situations that we've seen uh, in, the, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, many of these are going to be human factors, of, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, of a human factors focus, but uh, we just don't know how much, uh, the pilot and the controller side, actually. So the FAA recently published this aviation circular, AC-120-123, flight, pla- uh, flight Path Management. And it has a couple of, um, well, items that state the importance of pilots having the skills to fly the plane when the automation fails. And the first is that manual flying skills are paramount for flight safety. The second one, which is, I think, fairly interesting, that automation requires more training, not less. And the third is that it is not a binary choice between manual and automated flight. Both are essential components with different but complementary skill sets needed. Well, and and Max can certainly uh, attest to this, too, that uh, there's no worse place in the world to try to um, show somebody uh, or, or to make somebody proficient with the automation than in the airplane while you're flying. If, if they don't have the buttonology in their brains before the airplane takes off, it's, it's just, it's almost a wasted uh, training environment um, uh, because you, you can't think that fast. You can't um, pull all this stuff from your memory banks uh, that quickly. And uh, again, the, the switch between uh, a good good example uh, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about um, um, uh, about uh, flying instruments to low IFR conditions and that uh, just that moment when you pop out of the clouds at say 200 and a half and if you wait until then to punch off the autopilot it it just takes a, a very very slight movement of the sticker the controls or or the trim or anything to really screw up a good approach. And, um, but how, how do you get that practice? Well, some people say, I always turn the autopilot off at the, uh, at the marker and I fly it uh, by hand all the way, the, all the way the in. And I, I think that's great. And that makes people pretty damn proficient. Um, but again, uh, you know, I think the commentary on this AC was that it, it doesn't require anything. It's kind of hoping to nudge people in the right direction, I think. Hmm. 
All right. Uh, continuing the sort of theme we're developing here, next we have an item from the FAA. This is FAA completes rule to increase safety at airports. And this is a final rule. It requires certain airports to develop and implement a safety management system, an SMS. I guess I was kind of surprised that airports don't have a safety management system, or they're not required to have a safety management system. Some do. Um, but uh, but here we have. So airports are required to implement an uh, SMS. Um, this applies to uh, certain Part 139 airports. There's a certification status list that uh, we'll have in the show notes, of course. And it shows all 517 Part 139 airports. And it um, established, the FAA established some triggers um, as to which airports need to implement uh, an SMS. And the FAA used a, a risk based approach. So of the 517 uh, airports, 258 have SMS triggers, and that includes, uh, f- let's see, 144 hub airports, 27 airports with uh, 100,000 uh, operations, and 87 airports that are international air carrier airports have operations for that. Uh, so that's the 258 Airports. So, I think this is this sounds like a good thing. Like I said before, I, I'm kind of surprised that they don't all have that already. Yeah, I think traditionally I've associated SMS systems with operators. So airlines, uh, charter companies, things like that are all required to have the safety management uh, system. So now I haven't heard of it before in uh, connection with the airports, but I might not have just because I certainly on the other side, you know, I'm not in airport management. But I do see things occasionally. For example, I was at an airport recently where there were some yellow signs that were sticking up high enough that uh, if the person wasn't really paying attention, the low wing of the aircraft could have hit those signs. And so to me, those are absolutely the the kind of thing that probably ought to get into that system. I mean, these things are readily identifiable. It makes sense to, to have a list where you can keep track of them and you know knock them down one at a time as you fix them. I, I remember uh, 15 years ago, maybe, I think I first started hearing about SMS because uh, the discussion focused around the number of injuries that happened on the ground at fixed base operators, uh, people being hit or run over by trucks or tractors uh, or uh, one person uh, hooking a tow bar up to an airplane and trying to tow it out of a hangar and uh, catching a wingtip and and that and somebody said, you know, if if we just knew about all these things to start with and, and somebody reported them without worrying about getting fired, I mean, we could say, hmm, gee, I wonder if we could do something better next time. And and, and I'm, a bunch of us are sitting there going, yeah, how did we never think of this before? But again, it's it's uh, it's taken time. To, to work itself through uh, through the various parts of the aviation industry, uh, but it's also part of the just culture that uh, if uh, if Max, uh, for instance, has a, a situation uh, that he knows it's his fault, he just knows he shouldn't have done something he did, but he reports it, you, you can't, uh, unless it was absolutely negligent, you can't use that as, as uh, evidence to, to try to get rid of him. 
because he's trying to improve the system. Uh, and that that's the entire uh, point of this whole thing. Uh, it still has it still has difficulties because not everybody that works in a particular in an FBO or a, a charter or an airline necessarily buys into that. Okay, I I get a free pass if I talk about this. So, but but it's it's coming I, slowly but surely. But I think it's coming, and I I do think it's time for airports um, because I I hear about a lot of incidents. Uh, in my neighborhood airport here at O'Hare, and I, I guess I, I guess I was like Max. I, I thought they had an SMS on airports, but I guess not. Yeah. Well, and think how complex a big airport like O'Hare is. <laughs> having having taxied around there for the first time, it was like, whoa, it's quite. Uh, oh, quite you want to try it at night? Oh, is yeah. it fun? <laughs> oh, actually, my first time was it was at night there. Oh, really? But yeah, oh, I mean, I've, I've been in other Class Bravo airports before, but they don't even compare with <laughs> the complexity of O'Hare. It's just a whole other level. All right, we'll have some links in the show notes that go into this in, in more depth. The FAA has a webpage for uh, this uh, this topic. There's also a, a, a pretty extensive uh, frequently asked questions uh, page surrounding the safety management systems uh, requirements. Um, so moving on, another FAA story. We're loaded with these uh, this episode. This I thought we just did that for... For Brooke, um, well, partly. Thank you. Uh, okay. okay. Right. <laughs> we're trying to get her in trouble with her employer. That's what we're doing. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> no, this, no, no. I need, I need this job. <laughs> good. This is from the Federal News Network. FAA says it's implementing fixes to avoid repeat of IT failure that halted air traffic. Boy, all I can say is having worked at Hewlett Packard for. Many years and having been involved with uh, complex IT systems and replacement of legacy systems, I can assure you the complexity of this goes way beyond what most people would ever imagine. Uh, you, you have uh, companies that have you know literally hundreds of servers in the in the background running hundreds of different applications which are interconnected in myriad ways, and then to try and come in and upgrade one of them just becomes a, a massive challenge, taking millions and millions of dollars and many, many years. Uh, so, for example, in this article, they say that the FAA started upgrading the uh, the NOTAMS database back in 2009. They've been working on it. Mm. So that just kind of tells you a little bit about the complexity. They've been working on it for more than a decade, and they're still not quite there. Uh, what I found most interesting was the uh, the failure mechanism that led to the uh, NOTAM system going offline back on January 10th. We had heard that a contractor had deleted a file by accident, which certainly is easy to do. Anybody who's worked with computers know how it's easy it is to make a mistake. And then you're you're really you know, in trouble trying to uh, to go backwards and fix it. But in this particular case, what happened is they had a, a series of backup servers to which all the data is immediately replicated. So when the file was deleted on the main server, it then got immediately deleted on the backup servers, which means they didn't have the uh, you know, copy handy to uh, to roll back to. So as a first step, what they've done is they've 
uh, slowed up the synchronization. So now it synchronizes every hour or so, which gives them an opportunity to kind of go back in and say, whoops, don't do the backup now. I need to, I need to retrieve a file. It's the only copy. It's on that backup server. So yeah, it just, to, to me, it just kind of highlights the, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that we have in general in the IT industry, which is it's really, really hard to uh, upgrade and replace these very complex systems that you find at any large company or any large agency like the FAA. I think when I was in the IT business, that we would have multiple b- backups. They, there would be generations. So if something did sync uh, immediately, which I think is a good idea, usually, um, but there was also that, yeah, that, that one hour previous version, the one day previous version, the one week previous, you know, so uh, you, you had, uh, you, you know, choices when you needed, needed them. Um, but also um, coming out of this, and th- this is uh, through uh, the acting administrator again, uh, Billy Nolan, testifying before the Senate Commerce Committee. And he also, uh, besides talking about that one-hour synchronization delay, said that uh, the FAA has increased the level of oversight to make sure that more than one person is available when worker updates are being done on live databases. Um, and it made some other changes as as well. Um, we we've talked a little bit about the uh, controller systems. I remember Rob talking about vacuum tubes and and things like that. Uh, uh, Brooke, what what is? I, the... I never actually saw one. I just yeah, yeah. heard about. It. <laughs> yeah. Sure, Brooke. What is what is the uh, controllers? Is is it a a single system that's used by all the controllers at all the airports? I'm not sure. I'm really not familiar with that stuff. That's going to be more on the tech ops side of it. Each tower is different from the next. Um, if I had to guess, I don't think they're all exactly the same. But the controller is really just just doing the controlling. We don't really yeah, yeah. have anything to do with the IT side of it. Yeah, from what I've seen visiting towers, there are you know wide differences. Uh, so, for example, uh, you would think that every towered airport would have uh, radar right up there in the tower. Well, guess what? <laughs> Many of them don't. You know, some do, some don't. So there's a big difference uh, right there. And part of it, of course, has to do with, uh, you know, is there a, a radar feed available uh, anywhere in the area? If you've got a, a tower that's kind of, you know, out of the middle of nowhere, if I can just, you know, use that phrase, and there doesn't have to be, happen to be radar near that tower, well, there's not a source of data for them to, to display in the tower. So yeah, a lot of a lot of different iterations, uh, and I would, you know, my guess is that the the class B towers have the the nicer, newer stuff, and the smaller towers like at my airport, yeah, they're working with the older stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Schenectady Tower, they do have a radar feed. It's a direct feed from Albany, but those uh, Schenectady Tower controllers are not radar certified controllers. So the the uh, radar can only be used as a reference. So they can't radar ID airplanes they can't pinpoint their location so it's just as a reference um hmm. it's for use for communication with albany or with the albany radar controllers they can hand off aircraft to each other um, but the schenectady tower they have it but they can't use it because they aren't radar controllers ah. so that maybe other towers may have that same situation for class delta airports yeah, that, that's pretty common. Uh, so, for example, they're also not allowed to uh, issue a vector in that case, which is why you'll often hear the, the phrase uh, suggested heading, yes. which means, hey, you really ought to turn this direction. I'm just not legally able to order you to turn to this direction. 
Yeah, it was interesting because when I went through um, the flying program there, I got all the way up through my commercial and I had heard the controllers use that phrase, but I didn't learn until I was on the ATC side of it that what the suggested heading means. Like it doesn't mean that it's a vector for traffic or something. It means if it's safe to do so, do this heading, but it's not required for them to do that. All right, we have one last uh, news story. This one... I think yes. This one does not involve the FAA, so for <laughs> something a little little different. Uh, uh, Max T, what are we looking at here? Oh, I thought this was a fascinating uh, issue that I had never thought of. Uh, it says airlines say that the Chinese have unfair advantage since they're able to fly over Russia, and because of the Ukraine war, there have been the restrictions that have forced all the European carriers to uh, take longer routes uh, as they're traveling around the world. And so, for example, they were uh, talking about, for example, thin air flights between Helsinki and Tokyo can now take over 13 hours up from nine hours and 30 minutes prior to the uh, airspace closures. And so what you can imagine, that means not only does it add hours to the journey, but it also adds tremendous cost to the amount of fuel that's being required for that journey, which then makes it very hard for the uh, European airlines to be competitive with China-based airlines, which are able to fly uh, shorter routes by flying over uh, Russian airspace. So I thought this was just kind of a a very fascinating uh, second-order effect that probably people didn't think about as uh, the various uh, countries around the world started uh, picking sides for the the Russia-UK action that's uh, been going on between those two countries for the last year. And with China loosening up its COVID uh, restrictions. There is uh, the anticipation of much more travel into and out of uh, China. So the volume of this kinds of international travel is expected to to increase. And so the airline CEOs are are complaining that you know they're at a disadvantage, like you say, compared to other carriers that still fly over Russian airspace. But what are you going to do? You know, I mean, it it, it is an interesting. Uh, you know, fallout from uh, from this war, um, but I, I didn't see any kind of um, yeah, suggestions other than you know, hey, we're at a disadvantage because of this. Yeah, to me, it was kind of <clears throat> shall we call it moaning and crying and so on. You're absolutely right, and I think we've seen similar kinds of things in the past uh, when there are uh, you know discrepancies between what different. Uh, national carriers are able to do because of differing agreements with uh, different countries. So, yeah, I think this is kind of situation normal that, you know, they'd like to complain and, you know, hope maybe the regulators will do something to change that. In this particular case, I don't see anybody that's really going to be able to change that. I think they're stuck with this situation. Yeah. I guess I was wondering for those people that are complaining, would is the alternative to uh, hop on one of the Chinese carriers then? Uh, I, I, maybe I'm just too Yankee here, but, uh, I, I don't know if I were traveling from, uh, from Skipple or someplace like that going east, I, I wouldn't just necessarily jump on a Chinese airline. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just me. Uh, so, you know, I mean, cause if that's, if that's going to save you three hours or four hours, uh, uh, I wonder if the prices are much different. 
Well, I think that's the issue right there. And, and what's your concern? Uh, it seems to me that we've probably read that some of the domestic uh, routes have higher accident rates, but I don't think that's the case on the kind of the national carriers that are flying a long distance to uh, to China. I mean, is it a safety concern for you? Because that, that's, again, you know, I've flown to China on one of their airlines before, and you know, to me, the service and the planes and everything else seemed pretty much like any other airline. Well, no, I was just referring to the fact that uh, I, I'm wondering – if this is uh, really playing out, are are lots of people dumping SAS or KLM or uh, uh, you know British Airways and hopping on a Chinese airline to go to a destination that allows them to overfly uh, Russian airspace? I mean, because otherwise, I'm not sure I get the point either. Well, I think I would. You know, if, you know, as I've looked at uh, long overseas flights, you know, anything that would save three or four hours, man, I'm I'm all for that. So, yeah, no, I, I would imagine that uh, many people are, uh, you know, changing carriers just because of the, the time savings. Again, we're speaking with Brooke Manley. She's adjunct professor at SUNY Schenectady. Air Traffic Control Certification Program. Uh, Brooke, again, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you again. Let me start off with just a a, a real broad question as to what are the requirements to become a controller? If, uh, let's say, David Vanderhoof wakes up uh, one morning and decides he wants to be a controller, what are the requirements? Uh, You have to be over the age of 18. Uh, You have to be able to pass a Class 2 medical uh, that's what's required for the controllers. If you want to work for the FAA, you have to get in between age 18 and age 30. So it's kind of a small window to get in. Um, if you want to work uh, up at a private tower or a non-federal tower or a contract tower, there's no age restrictions on those. But those are harder to get into without experience. So usually people get into those uh, through military experience or through one of the two schools where we offer the CTO program. Um, then I guess a third option is if someone retired from the FAA, then they can go to a non-federal tower. Um, so it's the medical, the age requirement, pass the background check, um, then actually performing and doing the job. I'm curious, what percentage of uh, new controllers flow from programs like yours as opposed to coming from other sources? I don't have an actual number. Uh, right now, we are a pretty small program. Last year, we had two students go through, and they both ended up getting jobs in non-federal towers through the company Midwest. Um, one got Worcester, Mass., and the other one got Danbury, Connecticut. So it's two, but it's 100%. They went through. <laughs> they did very well. Um, I had them through basics. Uh, that's the first semester, basics, ground, local. Um, and they did the internship at Schenectady. They did the six months. They applied to Midwest pending um, the certification and the internship. Um, So we're trying to expand the program right now. Um, There's a lot of good things to come. But the people that go through and they work hard and study, they end up coming out and doing very well. Brooke, do the uh, people that graduate from the the SUNY program, uh, if they are, uh, if they do apply to the FAA, do they get any kind of a a hiring preference because they have been through an ATC program? Uh, to get into the FAA straight from Schenectady, you would need one year of experience. Schenectady offers the six-month internship. 
Um, so the plan is usually to go from Schenectady to another non-federal tower. You get your year in and then you can get in. Um, I went right from Schenectady right into the FAA, but I was on what they call the off the street bid where anybody can apply. Um, I definitely felt I had a leg up like education wise. Um, one of the courses that you can take there that you have to take at the FAA Academy is called basics. I had the option of skipping that course. It's like a six week course. I did not skip it. I just wanted like, you know, any education that you can get, it, it's always helpful, you know? Um, so I chose to take it, but I feel like it definitely helped me get the job having that experience. You know, like I said, you have to be able to, you can get hired, but then you have to actually be able to do the job and know all the rules and stuff. Well, and, and that's a really important point because the, um, the criteria, I'm sorry, the, um, the pass-fail rate uh, at some facilities is not terribly high. When I was out visiting the TRACON in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, I said, do you take people off the street? Uh, and they went, uh, we used to, but we don't anymore. Because, uh, I mean, imagine you've never been inside a control tower in your life or a radar room. And you walk into one of the busiest radar rooms in the world and they say, okay, sit yourself down. Let's get going. I mean, most people are, are just absolutely overwhelmed. Uh, I talked to one guy that's uh, coming to one of our safety meetings at uh, Powaukee in a couple of weeks. And he is one of the originals that uh, uh, did do it from off the street. And I thought, Whoa, I, I was difficult in such awe because I, I couldn't imagine doing that same thing myself. Um, but again, the, the, the pass uh, fail rate, uh, it's still not real great at FAA. Um, I, I forgot to 25% or 30% don't make it. It might be higher than that, but it's it's a significant number. I will say on, on the individual facility level, those numbers aren't always fully accurate. Um, so if someone um, themselves, they choose to withdraw from training or they move, and they go to a different location before their training is over, that counts as um, a, as not passing. It counts as a fail where that person may go on to be a great controller at a different facility at That's a different true. location. So those, those numbers can be skewed a little bit um, at my facility. The numbers, they look low, but I've been there almost four years now. And almost everybody has passed, but their numbers don't reflect that. It's because people end up, they move to other facilities. Um, they also, you don't start out at the super high level facilities, like somewhere like O'Hare. That's kind of rare. Um, I started out, I went from the Academy to N90 to New York Approach. And unfortunately, I didn't make it there. That was like you're saying, you're going from off the street, no radar experience to working approach for LaGuardia Airport. It was a lot. So I ended up going back to Albany, which was my goal anyway. And I feel like I'm doing really well at Albany. Um, but maybe one day I'd be able to move up back into those facilities. It's really, really hard to hit the ground running at the super high level facilities. Brooke, I think you, you were at a disadvantage. You just didn't have that nasty New York uh, you know, accent and approach. I don't. And... I know. I didn't pick that up. <laughs> yeah. And you also don't speak fast enough. <laughs> you would have been a shoe in for New York. Approach. They are good controllers there. Uh, they, yeah. they are good. Uh, Brooke, can you describe the curriculum a little bit? What are the what are the classes? Sure, yeah. So it's the two-year program. Um, I teach the whole thing. So the first semester, you'd go through air traffic basics, where 
Uh, we use the uh, question book from the FAA Academy. So at the end of that course, you take the CTO exam. Um, the next course is ground control. The prereq is having the CTO. Um, from Through ground, we dive right into the 7110.65, which is a um, majority of the rules that an air traffic controller has to follow, the rules and the phraseology. Oh, the Bible. The Bible, yes. yes. That is the air traffic Bible. Uh, so we dive right into that. Um, we go through page by page. We go through the whole thing. We start with ground control. So we go in the lab, um, which is a giant table, maybe 20 feet long by 10 feet wide. It's painted like Schenectady Airport. And we use toy airplanes to simulate ground control. So in the classroom, we teach the book work and the rules. And then we go into the lab and I teach them how to, how to use the rules for separation and the phraseology and what to say and how to like to practice talking to the pilots so that when they go into the tower, they have a little bit of experience. They know what to say. Um, they're still supervised when they go in the tower. So we do about eight to 10 weeks of um, lab time. Uh, the tower manager from Schenectady, he and I will both evaluate the students, say, yep, you're ready. You're good to go. Then they will start training on ground. They get about 30 hours to certify on ground control. And then the following semester, we do local. We dive right back into the 7110. We get a little more in depth. Um, we do the extra things that are involved with ground, like, for example, the traffic calls and what the tower controller says. Uh, I don't teach that on ground just yet because... They're just the, most of the students are brand new to this. So I can't throw everything all at once. Uh, once we get to the local stuff, we do the same thing. We do the classroom book work and then we go into the lab and actually like use those rules. Um, we do a lot of practice with that. They do the same thing. The tower manager comes and watches them in the lab, make sure they're good to go. Um, if they're not, it's no big deal. We'll do as many more lab sessions as they need. Um, they'll go into the tower, again, still supervised, meaning that someone is plugged in with the student. Um, the certified tower controllers at Schenectady, they can override the student at any time if they need to. Um, so they will finish up the local control. They'll get a check ride from that tower manager. They'll get a second check ride from a supervisor at Albany. So Albany is the FAA entity that will certify them at Schenectady. And then they're eligible to do that six-month internship. So then the six-month internship is the fourth semester in the program. Now, you use the phrase uh, local, and some pilots may not be familiar with that. That would be the controller who's talking to the pilots on the runway. Any idea where that came from? Because to me, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Why, why do we call the person controlling the runways the local controller? That is a great question. I've never thought about that before. I would think you're or teaching <laughs> Uh, You're uh, talking to the airplanes in the local area. Um, but yeah, for the pilots, you, you think of ground and tower. For the controllers, it's ground and local. So local and tower are the same thing. Well, when Rob was working, I think they used to call that position the loco controller, right, Rob? Was that what they called it? <laughs> when you were on position. <laughs> uh, it, it depends on where you are. Uh, I mean, I worked at, at towers that had two local control. In fact, uh, yeah. at Opelaka, when it was uh, really, really busy, we had three locals. And wow. it was, it was insane. But, but you know what, what I learned about air traffic control that's really cool is that if you, if you can be a controller, you probably would make a good instrument pilot because you just learn how to keep certain things that are going on in your airspace in your head, uh, just like you do when you're flying instruments. And, uh, 
it's it's really cool when it all works because uh, you can just it's just it's just smooth. Yeah, I when I went through I I got my private instrument commercial certs and that information is super valuable as a controller. Um, I found it's not very common for controllers to also be pilots. Um, there have been a couple times where I'm at work just doing the normal everyday thing and people have a, like a pilot related question and they ask me. So it's, I think it's very valuable for people to go through and do flight training as well as um, learning ATC because the information goes hand in hand. You're learning the same stuff, but from different sides, like different points of view from it. And your background is actually the very important when uh, there are emergencies in process. Often I've read uh, about uh, what's evolved during an emergency and mm-hmm. often part of the process is they, they find that person like you who has the, the piloting experience and get them to, uh, to assist. Of course, in an emergency, usually it's kind of a, a team that's working on it, but what a great resource to have. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Brooke, what drew you to this? Um, actually, I, gotta, I have to give my younger brother credit for this. I was in school for business and my brother started flying at Schenectady. And I was like, wow, that is super cool. I was like, if he can do it, I can do it. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I did one semester in business school. I was like, hey, I'm, this is cool. I'm going to go do what he's doing. Um, I was unsure which one I wanted to do, uh, like pursue as a career, the flying or the air traffic control part. Um, so I did the full double major I got a degree in air traffic control and aviation science, as well as the the flight training. Um, I liked the lifestyle of an air, air traffic controller better where you are in one location. Um, and then a pilot, I feel like it's not, you don't really, you're not told it as much in flight school that you're, you're literally flying all over and you're not home all the time. Um, so that was a priority for me to be able to be in one location and now I can fly. So I haven't flown uh, in a little while here, but I have planned this year to get back into my biennial, do a couple lessons and join the local flight club at Albany. Um, so I knew that I could still do both if I chose ATC as the career. So Brooke, for your follow-on career after you retire, become a flight instructor because you have the same same benefit. I mean, I wasn't particularly interested in you know flying all over the country and being in hotels <laughs> and getting up yeah. at four in the morning to go pre-flight the airplane in you know zero degree weather. But it's great being home virtually every night. Yeah, that is something I would love to do to become a CFI. What um, a wimp! <laughs> it's fun. It is fun out there when you're. You're the FO and you're on the ramp and you're sliding all over the ice trying to look (laughs) under the airplane and you're freezing your buns off. But it's nice in the nice warm tower. (laughs) It's nice. Yeah, okay. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, the the disadvantage, too, of of flying a lot is that uh, for me, when my wife would say, let's take a vacation somewhere, we'll go hang out in some resort and hang out in a hotel. And I think, oh, goody, I really want to go to a hotel uh, and hang out. Um, so, it, 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 yeah, it can really jade you. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's two completely different lifestyles. Yeah. I didn't even I didn't think of that pretty much at all during um, going through the program at Schenectady, but I see now that I'm out, like, oh, wow, like these are two completely different lifestyles. So, Is your tower open 24 hours a day? Albany is. Schenectady is not. But yes, Albany, it works. We work overnight. And the um, control tower operator certification program, I mean, this is part of a, a larger aviation science program at SUNY as well. There's other 
uh, other degrees, are there? Yeah. Yeah. So you can do, um, there's three options. There's aviation science um, with the pilot option where you go through and do all the flight training all the way through commercial. There's aviation science non-pilot where you uh, don't want to do the um, the flying so people that are more interested in maybe airport management or uh, anything else in aviation. And then the third one is the air traffic control degree. Um, some of the people that go through, they don't um, want to do the degree. They're just going for the CTO. So there's that path that some people take as well. Yeah. When you were talking about doing the ground school course, um, and, and you mentioned you have airplanes on a, uh, a pretend airport um, yes. Do you uh, move them in such a way that you, you send an airplane down a wrong taxiway or or oh, something absolutely. like that? Oh, okay. oh, yes. I have a list of things that can go wrong. So that's teaching that plan A, B, C, D. Um, I have some like so there's of course, there's the flight program at Schenectady. So planes that call up will do a practice taxi a flat tire. Oh, they took a wrong turn. Oh, I forgot my headset. Like we do all of that. I throw the, everything at them so that they're not surprised when they get to the tower and a pilot has an unusual request that that's not going to throw them for a loop. They're like, Oh, cool. She's already thrown all this stuff at me. I do a lot with the vehicles, with the fire trucks, emergency, non-emergency. Or I tell them we have to get to a certain lighting or certain equipment. We have to go to the localizer, the Pappy so that they will know where all this stuff is on the airport. And just so they're not surprised at all. They they go up to the tower very prepared for whatever a student pilot can throw at them. Are you able to control these vehicles somewhat remotely or do you have to reach out with your hand and move them? Oh, no, it's all they're like literally toy like Hot Wheels and toy airplanes. Okay. We So I speak as the pilot and I have the students move um, the vehicles and the airplanes so that they are staying. So the people not acting as the controller are staying engaged and listening to the scenarios. I was just thinking, do you do night practice, turn the lights out and show them how hard it is to see? We actually we do um, an IFR scenarios where I have them turn around. They turn their back on the airport table so that they have to use their scratch pad and their strips to keep track of where everybody is. And I'll pause the scenario and say, pause, tell me where so-and-so is or tell me what the call sign is of this airplane that's on taxiway alpha. So they will learn that, hey, you don't you can't always see these airplanes. This kind of ties into what we were talking about at the beginning, that they need to learn how to work it in all weather conditions and talking to student pilots, professional pilots. So I really do try and throw as much at them as possible. Like everything I wish I knew before I started. It's funny, but I, I remember, I'm sorry, I have to give you a story. There's a story coming here. Uh, but when I was in the Air Force uh, decades ago, uh, I was home on leave in Chicago, and uh, I, I had a chance to go visit the radar room. It used to be in the basement of the old control tower at O'Hare. And and I watched these people on the scopes. And in those days, it was just blips of, of light on a scope. There were There were no tags. There was nothing. You, the, the controller needed to remember which blip was who. Hmm. And wow. it was just, and I watched that and I thought, wow, how do they do that? And in the center, they used to have little plastic, um, they called them uh, shrimp, shrimp boats. boats. Yeah. yeah. And they would I've write. the story on, of the uh, shrimp yeah, boats. <laughs> and, and then it was one person's job just to keep pushing the shrimp boats so that the person working the position could you know it pointed at the blip that was that airplane and uh it and I again I was like whoa thankfully ATC's uh, come a long way where yeah. everything's everything oh, is up to date yeah. 
they use uh, Fusion where the, the tags update every few seconds. Or I'm sorry, the targets update every few seconds and they're all tagged up. And they have the aircraft type, altitude, speed. Um, we have a scratch pad of where they're going or what the pilot's intentions are, what kind of approach they want or which airport they're going to. So thankfully, we have all of that updated and there's a lot of redundancy in that. David, you look like you had something that you wanted to ask. Well, no, I was going to comment that, you know, the Navy the Navy has been pushing little pieces of paper on flat decks for aircraft carriers for years. It's in a very effective way to move traffic on the ground, even <laughs> in a very narrow space. Yeah. What kind of benefits uh, do controllers get? And, and, for example, do they have any kind of flight privileges with the airlines? Can they ride along and see what's happening on the other side of the microphone? Uh, so there's not flight benefits like discounts or anything. Um, there are, they call them fan flights, the familiarization flights. I have not done one. Um, I guess they used to be more common than they are now. I would love to do a fan flight now, but no, there's no um, flight benefits. So that there's no conflict of interest. So like we are not allowed to um, prefer one airline over the other. So no, they are allowed to give us any benefits. They were cool. I mean, we were allowed, um, I think six, six fam flights a year or something. Oh, wow. Uh, it was cool because all you had to do is file the paperwork and say, I'd like to, uh, you know, be on a fam trip uh, from, you know, uh, O'Hare to Los Angeles. And uh, you'd put down a couple of possible flights and uh, you, you'd, uh, you'd go to dispatch at O'Hare for, say, American Airlines and knock on the door and they'd say, who are you? Uh, well, I'm a controller and i'm one of right oh yeah all right and then of yeah, course i'd you, love to do one someday. oh and it was so cool because they'd put you in the jump seat right behind the captain and you just sat there and watched and again i, I i'm very childlike in those areas because i go whoa this is <laughs> That's so awesome. cool that would definitely be me too i only have experience in single engine airplanes so i would love to do a ride along in a regional or or oh, bigger it's it's really cool all right. Well, Brooke, uh, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I know I learned a lot, and I think uh, our Wait, listeners— Wait, she has to go? No, but we are have we, to move on. trying to get rid of her? No, no. She can stay. She can stay. Oh, okay. But wait a minute. Where do people go to apply to SUNY Schenectady? That's what I want to know. Oh, it's a community college. So uh, everyone is—100% so acceptance rate into SUNY Schenectady. Uh, I think you have the website with the notes here. I think my information is in there too. I run the whole program, so you can reach out to me or through the program. The school usually refers people to me anyway, because I, I help run it. Um, but yeah, if you are interested in it, I can give you a tour of the facility, the airport, the tower. Um, yeah, there, there's, don't be worried about how to get in because everyone's accepted into it. Um, you just have to pass the CTO test. Yeah, good. Yes, and we'll have that link in the show notes. Where Do you have, the, ans do you have the answers? The the class is easy. It's a question and answer book. So you literally get the answers. All you have to do is Whoa. study. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. It's useful. It's like the, like the private pilot test where you have the questions and answers. It's similar to that. All right. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank Thanks. you. Pleasure talking thank with you. Thank you, Brooke. See Good you night. later. Bye-bye. Bye. What's up with the geeks? Max Trescott, um, so you weren't flying today. <laughs> I had, I had uh, one or more cancellations today. Uh, so it was a, a work-at-home day, catch up on all the uh, 
uh, the paperwork. But I did want to, well, for example, one of the things I did was I updated my logbook for the last six months, which is an Excel spreadsheet that I've been running for, gosh, at least 20 years, I would guess. 741 hours in the first in the last 12 months, which is probably close to a record for me. Usually I do eh, five to 600, but just got so busy uh, at the end of the last year. And I don't know if it's CFI shortage or what, but uh, anyway, doing tons and tons of uh, flying. And of that, uh, about 20% no, of that, 140 Max, hours. Simply because you say yes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's do you true. have a backup for your logbook? Um, good question. I'll have to. Well, actually, I do have oh, backups come to think please. of it. So, oh, God. yeah, there, there would be. Uh, and what, about 140 of those hours were in the Vision Jet. I've got a trip coming up, a uh, five day trip coming up next weekend. So, that's going to be uh, fun. And I wanted to mention that uh, Aviation News Talk, episode 264, which came out a few days ago, is about the Diamond DA42, uh, which is the twin-engine diamond aircraft. Uh, I looked at my logbook. I think I did about 60 hours in that last year. So I had uh, an author on who's written a book about the DA42, and we chatted about that. And it's an interesting airplane just because it's got so much technology in it, and it is, frankly, so much simpler to operate when things go go badly than uh, kind of the traditional light twin. So anybody interested in finding out the about the DA-42, check out episode 264. So why is it easier? Because it's got FADEX, uh, so um, full authority digital engine control. So basically uh, it's an electric airplane, no magnetos. And it's also got backup upon backup and back, you know, upon backup. So I'm sure the first question people have is, what happens in an electric airplane when the electricity quits? And the answer is, we've got lots of sources and you'd have to lose all of them before the engines would quit. But eventually, if you run down every single battery, you know, in the airplane, you could make those engines stop by doing that. Those uh, are but diesels, it basically, aren't they? They are, yeah. It uses uh, jet fuel. And typically, you've got six levers in the a classic uh, you know, airplane, a twin engine airplane. This has two, so it's just much simpler to operate when uh, you lose an engine. Essentially, to secure the engine, you throw what looks like an electric switch in the cockpit, and it just automatically feathers it. So it's uh, got a lot of great technology in it. So with your demo, I'm sorry, this is a CFI question, but so when you're demonstrating uh, an engine out to a student, and, and you've shut one down and feathered it, is it easy to get it out of feather then? So our club really only wants us to, you know, demonstrate that once per flight, just once per, you know, training, once per rating, if you will. Uh, but the answer is it's so easy. You just turn the switch back on and it starts every time. So, hmm. so typically we're simulating it by, um, you know, once they say they're ready to feather, then we just move the throttle up to somewhere between 15 and 20%. And that simulates what the performance would be like if you had sure. turned off the switch and feathered it. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline. 20th of February, 2023. Struth, mate. It's the Oz desk. Oh, <laughs> Grant. You know, for a Kiwi, Grant, you sound uh, very Australian when you say stuff like that. It's, uh, I've had the Kiwi accent beaten out of me. 
As well you should, my friend. And welcome, folks, to the Australia Desk for episode 738. Now, Grant, we're going to be a little bit cheeky this week because we recorded a segment Us. called Last Week. Yes, I know, cheeky. Shock horror. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually, we actually recorded some content for last week. But uh, unfortunately, there wasn't quite room for our segment last week, and that's all cool. Uh, but uh, we're going to try and sneak back in this week with another segment. Yeah, we're good at sneaking in. And, I mean, what we recorded previously, most of that is still valid, except, yeah, the defence review has actually been handed to government, but they're not telling anyone what's in it. So the rumours are still flowing. Everything else is still important information. And we've had no Qantas turn back this week, so why not rerun it? You know, Grant, there's a very easy way that uh, Qantas can uh, stop that. They can make all that bad news about their turnbacks go away. Would you like to know how they would do that, Grant? Stop turning back aircraft? Well, besides that, they could probably just buy some advertising in mainstream media and poof, it would all go away just like oh, that. Oh, no, they're not, they're not beholden to their media. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Call me a oh, cynic. Who am I kidding? Call me a cynic. <laughs> anyway, folks, uh, here's some content we recorded uh, last week. Yeah, let's have a look at uh, some military news because we haven't done that for a couple of weeks. So uh, let's have a look at some upgrades to Australia's uh, EA-18G Growler program, Grant. There's been a uh, Australian firm awarded a $277 million contract. That's right, mate. This is uh, CEA. They uh, do radar technologies. In fact, uh, CEA radars are uh, being fitted on all our Anzac frigates. They're also being used on a number of our uh, newer fleet purchases in the ship area. Uh, very, very good technology that uh, the Americans are quite interested in, I'm told. Uh, but yeah, CEA Tech have got a uh, about a $280 million contract to update the, Australia's electronic warfare ranges. We've got some very large ranges up near Catherine in the Northern Territory and so on, and also some up near Amberley in Brisbane. And this contract is to update the various uh, fixed and portable emitters that will support training exercises and strengthen capability across the joint force. Yeah, and I think joint force is uh, very much the way that uh, defence is posturing itself these days, isn't it? And uh, particularly with uh, not only with the growlers, but of course with the um, with the F-35s as well. It's all about networked battle spaces and, of course, working with our allies who have similar equipment. So mm-hmm. having uh, being able to take advantage of, uh, you know, vast stretches of uh, Australia's uh, outback regions to, uh, you know, do this sort of training, particularly with those, um, you know, where our growler fleet is sort of based up in Amberley in Queensland, so they can access that area fairly readily uh, it just makes sense and um, you know we, we note too Grant that not only our Air Force is using uh, these uh, training ranges extensively but also uh, particularly the US uh, Air Force and the Marines are down here a lot doing that as well. Yep and the Singaporeans and so on so good to see but also this is just part of the general upgrades to the Growler so that our Growlers remain in lockstep with the US Navy ones including support for the next gen jammer and upgraded sensors and additional anti-radiation missiles. And of course Australia currently has a fleet of well actually we had 12 we currently have 11 EA-18G Growlers Uh, of course we had that one that uh, had a bit of a uh, mishap at uh, Red Flag a few years ago and uh, had to be written off but uh, Grant I believe a replacement for that aircraft is coming very shortly. Yeah, there is another one in the slot to replace that. But uh, hey, mate, speaking of uh, things that are saying farewell, um, uh, perhaps not quite as spectacular as that Crowler did in in Las Vegas. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But uh, the Kiwis have retired their first C-130H. Now, these aircraft are almost 60 years old. They've been maintained really well, just like the P3K2s. They're Orion's, very well maintained, kept going longer than most others have for this platform. But uh, they've got their new C-130Js coming in about a year. And this C-130H number three was about to go in for a one-year heavy maintenance session. And uh, there was not really much point in spending all that money to 
do all the heavy maintenance, only to have it get demobilised about a month after it came out. Yeah, so there's been uh, quite some media coverage this week of this aircraft doing uh, some pretty spectacular, uh, you know, flybys around New Zealand. I mean, there's some pretty spectacular scenery around New Zealand in general. Uh, so there's some great photo opportunities there. And, yeah, this Hercules, in fact, the Hercules fleet in New Zealand, as you mentioned, Grant, is, is very old. But um, it's been continually upgraded, and actually, Grant, it was interesting to look at some of the uh, the in-flight cockpit view of the uh, of the aircraft in question. And if you look at that flight deck, it's not a very nineteen sixties flight deck. It's all it's all glass. <laughs> no, they were generally referred to as the Super H's. They were very heavily modified, much like the P three K twos, as the Kiwis called them. Uh, they actually had similar onboard electronics to what you're going to find in the Poseidon. So the Kiwis have uh, ceased flying their Orions about six months before the Poseidons are an initial operating capability. So it's left a bit of a gap there. But those P three K twos on board. Yeah, the Poseidon's got a lot more, of course, but much of the gear on board, and especially the signal processor, was uh, very similar to what you'll find on a Poseidon. So uh, the six-month gap, the Kiwis are asking for help from the Aussies, the Yanks, and various other groups to help provide the uh, maritime coverage for a very large area of ocean that uh, they used to provide. It'll actually be interesting when the Poseidon fleet arrives in New Zealand and, of course, um, they're looking for their new C-130J fleet to also arrive next year. It's really going to modernise their air force now. New Zealand is a small country. It's a small air force, but, uh, you know, they, they quite often punch above their weight. A lot of that uh, work that they do actually grant, uh, particularly with the Hercules, um, usually centres around humanitarian aid mm-hmm. uh, going out to their part of the Pacific. It's really, really important work and the Kiwis do a great job of that. So um, once they get these new aircraft, particularly when they get that C-130J fleet coming in, that's going to be a real big boost to them. It certainly is. And they've already got their first Poseidon at Ohakia near uh, Palmerston North. They're moving maritime from Fanuapai in Auckland down to Ohakia. But uh, yeah, first airframes down, but uh, there'll be a few more coming uh, early this year. But mate, Staying on defence, as many in Australia would know, we've got a defence strategic review underway. The new government's come in. They want to make sure that they're keeping defence going the way they want it and the way they think it should be. That's due to be released this month. And we're already starting to get some leaks and rumours and innuendos and all sorts of things. What I'm hearing is that there's likely to be more Tritons, the big maritime surveillance aircraft, uh, the drone, and uh, that's huge, almost the size of a 737, and uh, some more F-35s, likely to be another squadron perchance. You know, believe that when you hear it, but I do know that the Land 400 group uh, for Phase 3, where we're bringing in the um, armoured personnel carriers, are looking a little nervous. You think uh, if they go ahead with this, then uh, one program might be drained of funds and uh, to supplement the other. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, from 450 down to 300 units is what I'm hearing. But, you know, we'll leave it when it comes out. But, uh, yeah, there's lots going on. And apparently there's going to be quite a bit of revealing, shall we say, at Avalon. Well, we're very much looking forward to Avalon. And, uh, Grant, just looking at the way uh, some of these things are being leaked now, I'd say it's a pretty safe bet to say that at Avalon, where such things normally happen, uh, maybe an announcement will be made there. Wouldn't it be interesting to see if they did uh, start uh, placing an order for additional F-35s. We've got 72 on the order books now. Grant, I think somewhere in about the mid-50s fleet-wise might be here now, last mm-hmm. time I looked. So that's, that program is, uh, you know, delivery-wise is just about complete. Of course, the F-35 has been a controversial plane in some sectors, usually in media sectors, let's be honest. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've always had great faith. And, and, and Grant, we've been really privileged over the years to talk to people that are really uh, embedded in that program and, um, you know, the professionalism 
and the knowledge that those people bring to that program is, is you know, it's just amazing. So I've always had faith that that aircraft will be a, a successful platform. Yeah, uh, they were originally looking at just over 100. It got whittled down to 72. Indications are it may go back up. But hey, you know, believe it when it happens, mate. This is like uh, working at Avalon. An aircraft hasn't truly turned up. They can talk about it arriving, but until it flies in, lands, taxis in, and goes unserviceable, it hasn't truly arrived. This is very true. And, of course, uh, Grant, I also note just quickly in this uh, article that we're looking at in Australian Flying Magazine that there's talk of an aviation white paper as well. And uh, would this just be probably another case of a government talk fest where they say lots of things that sound really good to general aviation and nothing ever changes? We've had so many investigations, panels, submissions, as is being said, hey, guys, why don't you just dust off what you said the last three times put it in again because it's probably still correct from the last one that was only a year or so ago. I really think this government needs a slap in the head. Yes, they need to have a policy. Yes, they need a white paper with a green paper coming up. But damn it, guys, just get off your asses and implement some of the things that have already been recommended. For God's sakes, you can't lose if you start that and then you'll be hailed as heroes because you started fixing some of the problems that we all know are there. That's true. And, you know, Grant, I think we might actually try and get our friend Ben Morgan from the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association of Australia to come on and talk about the uh, civil aviation changes or proposals yet again. I think uh, he'd have uh, quite a lot to say about that. I certainly will. And, uh, yeah, I think we could make a whole episode out of that. But um, I'm sure we'll find some good stuff to uh, shorten down and include in an Ausdesk. But, uh, mate... We've got to get back to work and we've got to get ready for Avalon. It's only uh, like just over a week away now. Yeah, it's only a week away. So uh, not sure if we'll produce some content for next week, but we're certainly going to be gathering some content. We'll be at the Australian International Air Show uh, 2023 at Avalon in Victoria. Uh, it's been a while since we've done one of those grants, so we're really looking forward to being there. We'll be there uh, ostensibly recording content for uh, Australian Defence Magazine and some other little side projects we may have going on. So uh, we're really yep. looking forward to being there. It's going to be a great week at Avalon. And uh, just for once, I think, Grant, we're actually – probably shouldn't put the mozzer on us. It's actually looking like some pretty good weather. Jinx, jinx. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, hopefully it, hang, it hangs in because, yeah, I'm doing uh, media on the trade days and then I'm on the commentary team on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That is awesome. And our good friend Tony Moclear is going to be there as well uh, taking over. So that's been a, a huge announcement and we're, we're going to try and nab him and have a talk too. So uh, we're going to head off to Avalon and have a great time. Until we talk to you next, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Cheers, folks. Cheers, guys. That was really fun. I, I remember back in the old days when Steve and Grant were just like us peons, and now they're the big monkey mucks at Avalon. Ah, oh, I re- they grow up so quickly. And they mentioned uh, Ben Morgan. I met him when I was in Australia about four and a half years ago, and interviewed him on episode eighty nine. What a great guy! I mean, I was he is the executive director of AOPA. Australia, a very capable uh, uh, person. It's always great to see uh, someone with his, of his skills and talents running an organization like that. So hopefully they'll have him back on their Oz desk soon. But, but you know, I wonder, Max uh, East, how many people realized the intro there, the didgeridoo going with some fellow uh, introducing Stephen Grant that may have sounded a bit alien to some uh, more recent listeners. Yeah, that goes back uh, a long, as you know, a long ways. That's Courtney Miller doing that uh, that introduction, and 
Hey, it worked then. I think it still works now. Do you remember when he used to do the double uh, whiskey tango foxtrot every mm-hmm. week? Uh, yeah. Yep, he had those segments. Yeah, I missed those. So uh, we need to get uh, we need to get Courtney back on the show uh, for an episode or something. Uh, he's he's still working with John Ostrower over at the Air Current, and I think he has some other things going as well. But uh, yeah, be nice to have him back. Meantime, we have some listener mail. Uh, we heard from Patrick Wiggins, who sent us an article from Electric.co. This is electric air taxi tested in the greater New York City area. And this is the Beta Technologies Alia 250. Uh, they're partnered with Blade Air Mobility. And they flew this from Westchester County Airport. That's in White Plains, New York. And it's an EV tall. It has, uh, it's a high wing. I think it's got a 60-foot wingspan. And it has uh, four, uh, you know, vertical propulsion units and uh, a pusher prop in the in the rear 50 foot wingspan i see and it comes in two versions a cargo version and a passenger version the uh, passenger version seats five plus one and then there's the the cargo version which has 200 cubic feet of cargo space um, so they've been testing that there. It's, uh, you know, another another eVTOL, another air taxi kind of aircraft that's uh, among many, many that are out there being thought of, developed, designed, or tested somewhere along in that process. So we'll have that link in the show notes. And then Andy wrote to us. He says, uh, new to the podcast and an avgeek by nature and by profession myself. He says, thanks for the interesting discussions with respect to the United 777 incident. My questions center on the 2.7G number. Uh, First, how was this data point obtained? I suppose the flight radar data could somewhat corroborate. Was the flight crew aware of how many Gs they had pulled? Is that data preserved in the flight data recorder or other onboard systems? These are lots of good questions. Uh, more, more generally, was the FDR or CVR data from that time overridden by the end of the flight? I think it was, as I recall, because they continued their flight. So I think that data was was overridden. I don't know where the 2.7 G number comes from. I kind of reached out to see if I could um, get some information on that. And I so far wasn't successful. So if we if we find that, I, I did kind of wonder that at the time. This is the aircraft, of course, uh, that we talked about, the United 777, where uh, soon after takeoff, it did that dive and then climb back up before continuing. I, I talked to John about that uh, last week. And uh, he told me that he got that from somebody at United, uh, ah. that 2.7G thing. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I was wondering where that came from. And uh, Andy also uh, kind of raises the, the question, could it could it be a significant over-G event? And I have no idea what the, uh, what the G limit from a Boeing is on a 777. So I think Should a large three, commercial... Right? No, it's actually lower than that for the the large um, aircraft. I believe it's uh, two point five, oh. which is very different from what we have for um, smaller airplanes. 
Uh, for small airplanes, I think the normal category is 3.8 Gs. Uh, the utility category is 4 G, uh, 4, 4, 4. 4.4 Gs. Yeah. And then the aerobatic category is uh, is 6 Gs. But I was surprised to read uh, just sometime in the past year that uh, the airliners get a bit of a pass. And I think it's 2.5. Mm. And it kind of made sense when I read it because you would expect them to be in very stable conflight figurations uh, at all times. Three hmm. Gs is the most I've ever experienced in an airplane. It, how did you experience that? Uh, aerobatic glider. Yeah, that was kind of fun. In fact, it was more than kind of fun. It was a blast. So tell us more about that, because I know nothing about aerobatic gliding. Well, I did it. It was in California, somewhere up Napa Valley, uh, an outfit that, does glider rides and you can uh you know buy a glider ride of, of various durations so they have a menu on the board with uh, you know, different packages you know I, I don't remember exactly you know a 30 minute a, a one hour you know the various different things and then down at the bottom was something that was just simply labeled the top gun run and and my friend that who have been your first clue. Yeah, 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 exactly. My friend who uh, who brought me there, without me knowing what the destination was, he just uh, said, look, "Look, we're gonna go on a we're gonna go on a little trip, and I'm gonna take you someplace." And he looks at me and he says, "Ask for the Top Gun run." So so I did, and immediately all of the pilots who were you know behind the counter over there started arguing over whose turn it was to fly the top, a top gun run. And, uh, finally they decided who it was. And it's the, uh, it's, it's the only, as I recall, the other, uh, glider rides that you could take, uh, did not require that you strap on a parachute, but for the top gun run, you had to put a parachute on. Now, maybe that was for dramatic effect. I don't know. But, uh, so I had to, I had to strap on a parachute. They, uh, they got me into the glider. It's a two-seat glider. I'm in the nose. The pilot's behind me. Big bubble canopy. So you're right out there exposed. And they're um, uh, they're strapping me in with the harness, at which point I kind of start choking and because it's so tight. And uh, the, the comment from them was, oh, just wait. Uh, it's going to feel too loose pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> so and so we were towed up and released and it was just you know loops and rolls and it was just really I had never done any acrobatic flying whatsoever and it was uh you know very dramatic and of course you know silent except for the wind noise and being up front in a bubble canopy um at one point I started to lose it oh that was the other thing they said before the flight they said if 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 you throw up in the in the plane, you get to clean it you up. Clean it up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So at, at one point in the flight, I really started to lose it. I it was spinning, and I was just, oh, this is this is not good. And for some reason, I had the presence of mind to just focus on the instrument panel in front of me instead of. Well, I changed my frame of reference from the outside world that was spinning to the in the cockpit world which was not spinning, and that nausea went away instantly, instantly. So we, we did that, and I got out, and I said, oh, this is just wonderful. And, and my friend says, uh, well, let's walk around for a little bit. 
I thought, well, we kind of got need to get back. He says, trust me, let's walk around for a little bit. And after a couple minutes of walking around, all of a sudden and uncontrollably, my legs just turned oh, to yeah. jelly. <laughs> and I, I could hardly stand up. It was really a weird kind of a feeling. It didn't last that long, but he knew what was coming. So he advised me correctly not to get in the car, car or do anything else. So. And you had a G meter in the panel, is that? How and that's how I, yeah, yeah. the The highest I saw was around right around three Gs. There may have been, it may have been higher um, than that, but but that's what I saw. Not not for me. I'm. It doesn't do anything for me. So has everybody in this podcast on the on the call right now worn a parachute at some point? Yes. Have yes. you? Well, you did when you were in the T six, right? Yeah, every time I've got up in the T6s, I've been I've been with a shoot. So Yeah. All right, so all four of us have had a shoot on at some point. Have any of us ever had to use it? I think probably not, right? Oh, oh, you mean wearing on your back. I thought you meant in the airplane for the whole airplane itself. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> yes, no. <seriously. laughs> Cuz I I take a parachute with me on virtually every, every flight, flight when I'm flying Cirrus aircraft. No, I I have uh, I have worn them before for for aerobatics. Cool. All right. Thank you for listening. And, and most, most of my clients wear them when they have to go flying with me because they're scared. <laughs> yeah, you're going out with that Trescott guy, you better wear a parachute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, our guest this episode was Brooke Manley, adjunct professor at SUNY Schenectady. She teaches the air traffic control certification program there. Uh, be sure to check the show notes for the link. To, uh, to learn more about that. And you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link for this episode, if you want to go straight to uh, the notes for this episode, is airplanegeeks.com slash 738. Of course, our email is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, David Vanderhoof, anything closing? No, just um, if you... You can always join me at the American Helicopter Museum. I love when our listeners show up. Um, I do keep a stash of buttons behind the counter. So if you do show up, you tend to leave with an Airplane Geeks button. And, of course, you can always find me on Fridays talking to that guy, Max Flight, about um, unmanned, uncrewed, or whatever we're calling it this week, drones on the UAV Digest. Good. And Rob Mark, how about you? Oh, all the usual places. I mean, it. I, I don't get out much anymore. Uh, you know, it's it's a little uh, scary. I people notice that when I walk around with a parachute on, they think I'm a little odd. But it's a long way down to the ground when you're standing, you know, five and a half feet above. I mean, I want to be prepared. Yeah. All right, Max Trescott. Well, yeah, and, and people, it's it's not the parachute that t- tells people that about me. It's the, the funny little beanie hat that I wear. That's usually how I realize there's something off about this guy. Yeah, check out the Aviation News Talk podcast if you want to send me an email or question or any feedback for the show. Just go to the top of the page at aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact. Great. And if you want to find me online, you can learn all the places you can do that at 30,000feet.com. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. 
Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is there, is there an echo in there? <laughs> What'd you say? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Welcome. Okay. Welcome. Bye. Bye.